Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As a podcast host with ADHD, I always knew I would have to rely on external tools to help me keep on track. I've never been great with consistency, but I've released a new episode every week for almost a year. And for that, I have to thank Timo. Timo is an app created by a team of neurodivergent people on a mission to help the 1.5 billion neurodivergent people on the planet live a more productive life. It's a highly visual daily planner, perfect for the way my brain works. And because if something is out of sight, it is literally out of mind. I really appreciated how the app lets you see your whole day at a glance and how the reminders appear on your lock screen. It takes away so much stress and even celebrates with you when you complete tasks, which gives you a real sense of achievement. It's the perfect body double. They also offer brilliantly simple coaching programs for neurodivergent people. If you feel like you're constantly falling behind in tasks, head over to the Timo website. Make sure you click in the link in our description to find out how it can help you simplify time management, build increased focus, and ultimately help to put you back in charge of your life. Do you think the traits of ADHD can clash with the responsibilities of being a parent? When you go through life as an undiagnosed neurodivergent, you develop coping strategies around yourself. So you almost sort of build scaffolding Mm. is how I would describe it. And when you become a parent, the scaffolding falls away because everything is changing and everything is new. And you have so much more to remember now because it's not just about keeping yourself alive. Now it's about keeping another human mm. alive as well. We're all really familiar now with the um, the term mental load. So, and it's often women that hold the mental load. So that just, you know, in ca- just to sort of illustrate that the mental load is when uh, you're the person in a relationship or in a family unit that is the person that remembers birthday cards or... Um, adding dates to the calendar and grocery shopping and paying the bills. So that's the mental load. So like the sort of heavy lifting of day-to-day living, I guess. So that's the mental load there. But then when you are neurodivergent, you've also got the cognitive load. The 
cognitive load is I think we've got six spaces in our working memory. So neurotypical people have six spaces and so do neurodivergent people. But when you're neurodivergent, you've got more to remember before you've started a task. Say, if we're talking about this in the realm of parenting, you've got a, a, a neurotypical mum and a neurodivergent mum. Mm. Both got your five, six spaces of cognitive load. But the neurodivergent parent is trying not to forget her baby. <laughs> you know, because that, that, that literally has happened before. Yeah, like wherever I put my child. Um, you are trying not to get triggered by your baby's cry because that could be really overstimulating. You are um, trying to remember where you're going, you know, without getting lost because that is a really common thing. So then when you look at that, so you've got like, I can't bend my fingers that far, but the neurotypical parents still got like five or six spaces in the working memory, but the neurotypical parents only has two. So that then shows you how much harder it is to parent as a neurodivergent parent mm. because you're you were already at a sort of a, a cognitive disadvantage and now you've got all of these other things. So true, isn't it, about the cognitive load and hearing you say how we've only got six slots and the neurodivergent person might be using up 80% of their cognitive load by just functioning because actually silently behind the scenes, five of those slots are being taken up with, like you said, fighting overwhelm, anxiety, perhaps you've been triggered by a rejection, but these are all things that are going on behind the scenes. So actually you've only got 20% to deal with the actual task, which means you might not be able to answer a phone call or pay a bill, or you might walk into a lamppost, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, Several lampposts. It's that silent <laughs> capacity that's actually happening behind, behind, your, behind the scenes that isn't obviously visible to everyone else. Um, which I think is why there can often be a lot of confusion as to why we hear people say, why can't you just do that? Why can't you just do the task? Because there's so much going on in our heads yeah. that is invisible to the outside world. Uh, our brains are very rarely silent. Mm. You know, it's very, I don't even know if my brain is ever silent. So you, you had a son, mm -hmm. Sunny. Yeah. Can you describe what, what type of child Sunny is? So Sonny was a really good baby, didn't really cry, but never really slept. So there would be like 20 minute naps, mm. which as a new parent is a lot, you know, 20 minutes is barely enough time to go to the toilet and do the washing up. He was always a baby that was nonstop, very inquisitive um, into everything, you know, opening all of the cupboards, getting everything out. Um, full of beans, very strong, which was really funny because his middle name's Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> and actually when we took him for one of his um, first childhood like baby jabs, um, the nurse couldn't inject him. And she said, oh my God, this is the strongest baby in Hackney. <laughs> <laughs> and then she looked at his little book and she went, oh my God, his name is Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> he was always a wild child. So always was running away from me, always interrupting mm. me. And actually, as he got a bit older, he said, because I did try and teach him, you know, that it's good to be able to wait your turn in a conversation. And um, he said to me one time, but mummy, if I don't say 
what I need to say, the thinks fall out of my head. And isn't that just such a brilliant way of putting ADHD? How much of Sunny's behavior rang true or was familiar to your own life? Well, I think that one thing that I talk about quite a lot is um, familial blindness. So familial blindness is a term for when you are an undiagnosed neurodivergent adult yourself and then you have a baby that grows into a child and you don't see the neurodivergent traits in your child because you think that your child is just the same as you. Mm. And they are, (laughs) but it means that you are both neurodivergent. So I think that potentially it's, 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 two sides of the coin for me and Sonny because I think that if I wasn't neurodivergent myself I might have picked up on Sonny's differences sooner but also raising Sonny and seeing his differences was like holding up a mirror to myself as well so it was this sort of two sides of the same coin and that led you on in your own journey did it to recognizing that actually you might be neurodivergent yourself yeah i mean as as the parents any parent of a neurodivergent child will tell you how difficult it is to access a diagnosis it takes a really long time it's exhausting it's frustrating people don't listen to you so what happens generally during that period of time which um i think for sunny that was about two maybe two years So during that time, I just was online constantly, reading lots of books, watching anything I could find, um, soaking up all of the information about neurodiversity. So before Sonny was diagnosed, I had already diagnosed him myself, really, because Mm. I'd, I'd educated myself so much. But during that process, then you're sort of, the penny is starting to drop that maybe this could be you as well. There was one memory actually of during that period of time that two-year period where we didn't have any access to any help and we were waiting to get a diagnosis the professional advice was that you shouldn't tell your child anything about autism or adhd because you know we don't know yet which is a bit of a weird bit of advice actually when you're looking at a two-year period of time in a really formative point of a child's life So I followed that advice because I didn't know any better at the time. And then one night my child was in the bath and he looked up at me and just said, mum, I've seen so many doctors now. Why am I not fixed yet? Was that quite heartbreaking to hear him say? Yeah, it's like for a mother to hear that from her child, it's like a dagger to the heart. So I just, at, at that point, I think you just sort of think, I don't know. I mean, I, that was a real moment of, okay, I know better than the professionals for my child. So I just looked at him and I just said, oh my God, like there's nothing wrong with you. You're not faulty. You do not need to be fixed. That's not what this has been about. I'm sorry that I didn't explain it to you better. There are two types of brain, neurotypical and neurodivergent. Everybody's got one or the other. And actually it's really important for everyone to know which one of those brains they have, because then you can live, learn and work in the way that suits you best. And he just looked at me and he went, oh cool (laughs) and I was like wow you know we don't have to dumb it down for these kids Mm. are there any activities that you do with Sunny that 
help you grow and build awareness for each other? Like we're on this real learning journey together. I often say that Sonny teaches me more than I teach him. Mm. I think that when you're raising a, a child that's neurodivergent and a child that is demand avoidance and the child that has challenges around emotional regulation, and you do too, that can often lead to the family unit triggering one another. So what we tend to do at home is when Sonny and I do get triggered. So if if we do have a situation where there's a bit of a meltdown from both of our sides, sometimes, you know, sometimes we're both having a meltdown <laughs> at the same time in the same house. So that's a scene. Um, but afterwards, we have learned to sit down together and discuss what went wrong. So what was it that triggered you in the first place? And then what was it that triggered me? And how can we stop that from happening next time? Or, or how can we lessen the chances of that happening next time? So we often have quite grown up conversations around, around triggering and meltdowns and things in life that we find challenging and I think that Sonny is like his emotional intelligence is so high and I often feel like he's got such a head start in life with regards to that that it's just going to see him fly once he's an adult mm. you know like I think that I'm 50 now and in some there are some things that he's ahead of me with, with regards to emotional regulation and and triggering and understanding his nervous system. And I think, yeah, like listening to your children and taking their feelings seriously and taking the time to apologize, it all sort of goes against traditional parenting strategies. We talk about our feelings all the time and we come up with strategies all the time. And it's obviously, it's a constant, it, it's always evolving and changing. But one of the things that we do is uh, a vibe check, which is like you walk into a room and you work out how you feel about being here. Um, who are the people that are here? Like, are you going to, do you feel like you, is this going to be a good space for you? Mm. And then you do a vibe check afterwards as well. I can compare the two things. So then you can start to have more awareness around what are your triggers, you know? And I think when you are in a parenting situation where you've got a demand avoidant child and you yourself are demand avoidant, avoidant as well, it's all about self-awareness. And it's a longer teaching journey that is because you can't teach someone how to be self-aware. You can only give them the tools and guide them towards becoming more self-aware. I can't even remember if I've gone off on a complete tangent now, but um, self-awareness is something that we've used as a tool. And that comes from discussing triggers. And that comes from, you know, being open about mm. our traits and our feelings and identifying our traits. And naming your traits and feelings is a really good strategy for kids, actually. So whenever historically we'd be going out anywhere, you know, and I think this is a big thing for many families, leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just leaving the house. It's so hard, you know, forgetting all of the things, potential um, avoidance around going out, potential anxiety about where you're going, what to expect, all of these things. And then you start to think, 
oh God, now we're going to be late mm. on top of everything. And so Sonny would always get so stressed about leaving the house. And eventually he said to me, mom, please don't make me time stressed. Because I'd be like, come on, come on, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. Just that one sentence from my child, mom, don't make me time stressed made everything fall into place because that just made such sense to me. It was like, oh, wow, of course. I'm saying the wrong thing. Come on, we've got to hurry up mm. or else we'll be late. That's piling on anxiety. So as soon as you have the label for that feeling, I'm now time stressed. You can then look at it and go, okay, how can we avoid getting time stressed? So, you know, you can obviously pretend you'll put all the strategies of getting ready earlier, <laughs> not losing your things, being prepared. But in actual fact, we know most of those things aren't realistic for ADHDers. So what you can do instead is like remove the unnecessary stress of actually having to be on time. Do you know what? Mm. What's the worst that can happen? We might just have to be 10 minutes late. It's okay. Like take away that layer of stress. All of that stress and it takes up so much energy at a point where you, where you should be getting ready for an event and then you, by the time you get there, you probably won't have any energy left to participate in the social interaction. A lot of parents, they sometimes, because they get a slightly lower tolerance and perhaps impatience, they can sometimes react badly. They're having a bad day or they're, just, they're caught at the wrong moment and they could perhaps, in some occasions, shout at their child. And then the, the guilt that follows on mm -hmm. from something like that. Do you have any words of compassion or advice for, for a parent in that situation? Well, I think that we're all human mm. <laughs> and there's always going to be moments when we're going to lose our shit. And I think that we all shout on occasion and we all regret shouting. Children need to know that their parents are human. Children need to know actually sometimes that it's a lot being a parent in the modern world. And sometimes we are going to lose our shit. And that's just normal life because I'm, I think that actually that gives our children permission to do the same as well. Like they are going to feel stressed. They are going to feel overwhelmed. They're going to shout and regret it. Like we all are going to have those moments. So I think for me, it's always about how you frame that afterwards. Because if you're just losing your shit and then you're leaving your child and you're just going off and feeling guilty... Mm. That's not, um, you haven't addressed the issue there. So again, it goes back to that, having a good um, level of communication with your child, being able to go back and say, you know what? I lost my, I lost my temper there and that wasn't okay. Mm. I'm really sorry. I am the parent. I'm the adult in this situation. You're the child. You are not responsible for my feelings. You know, and I think that's really important to let children know that so that they don't go off and hold the guilt of their parents losing their temper. Mm. So there's that two, two sides of it. Children, let them know that it's normal. It's a part of life. You're going to lose your shit. Apologize when you've made the mistake. Explain that to them in an age-appropriate way why you got overwhelmed. Like, I will have this conversation with Sonny all the time now. If I lose my temper get overwhelmed, shout, snap at Sunny. I'll go back afterwards once I've calmed down. I will apologize, say, I'm really sorry. I wasn't mad at you. I was mad because I'd overwhelmed myself. 
I already knew I'd taken too much on today. And mm. then when you asked me for a snack for the hundredth time today, <laughs> I snapped. And that wasn't, it wasn't about you. It wasn't your fault. That was all on me, mm. you know. When you can admit that you've made a mistake as a parent, when you can apologize and sort of repair this rupture, I think you begin to have a real deeper um, connection with your child. And also, like I said, you're setting your child up for a world where this happens. People lose their temper, you know. The important point of it is that you can go back and work out why it happened. Mm. Maybe you can do better next time. But, you know, you can apologize and make up. And hopefully that then leads to um, our kids having those strategies that we're only just putting in place now. Mm. You know, like, oh my God, I already knew I was overloaded. I'd already taken too much on. So then by explaining that to your child, hopefully then they're understanding that, oh, mom gets stressed when she's taking too much on. Maybe I shouldn't take too much mm. on so I don't get stressed. You know, so it's that, like I said, this learning journey mm. that's sort of happening when with, the, with a parent and a child side by side. <clears throat> Speaking of stress, Let's find out what's in this week's washing machine of woes. Okay. Right, so let's see what the community have asked me to ask you this week. Dun, dun, dun. Right, this week's washing machine of woe is... Actually, this is a good one. We're just talking about stress. I find cleaning very therapeutic. I don't clean because my home is a mess. I clean because my mind is a mess. Do you relate to that? Same. <laughs> That's so weird. This is exactly why I clean and tidy my house. It's not because I feel like, I don't know, like for, for with an ADHD brain, okay, I've got a better way of explaining this. Our environments are super important to us. As neurodivergent people, mm. we have to be in the right space to do the things that we need to do. Um, and for me... That looks like, you know, my home is colourful. Um, it has things that spark joy all around. And I cannot, cannot focus on work if there is a pile of clutter in front of me. So, yeah, it's like messy room, messy mind. Mm. So I have to have my environment in place first. Definitely relate to that. Tidying up the, the for is, mental health. Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting one because it can happen at the most random times as well. I find you could be lying in bed, literally dozing off and suddenly you could have an anxious thought and you jump up and deep clean your entire flat. Yeah, yeah. It can come out of nowhere. It really helps. It's really therapeutic. It's so therapeutic. Oh my God. Often cleaning your house is is an act of self-care and it's it's as good for your mental health as going for a walk or going to the gym or going to see a friend you know, it's another thing. It feels like I don't do it because it, it's a chore or a job to do. Yeah, I literally do it to calm my mind, to make me feel more um, secure and focused. And also because the dopamine hit at the end of having mm. a nice tidy house. The annoying thing is that you've got to do it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So you either clean to distract yourself from some sort of internal chaos or if you know someone's coming over in five minutes. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, um, I read a, or saw a term recently that sort of probably this, whoever sent this question in will, um, relate to as well. It's the ADHDers, uh, they tidy up 
but they also hidey up. So the hidey up is where you just shove things. We all have a room where we just throw everything in there and it's the messiest room of the house. Yeah. But all or, the communal like, areas look perfect. Or, or, the, or the loft, you know, yeah. I've done that before where I'm like, shit, I've got someone coming around. How do you know about my shed, Kirsty? <laughs> my God, my loft. The, the funniest thing actually about my loft, because it is, you know, you, you couldn't, I've only just been able to get in there because mm. I've started to get things down now and get rid of them and sell them and sort through. But um, what was that book called that was about, it was one of those declutter books. It was one of the famous declutter books, right? And um, when I went up to my loft, the declutter book was just sat there on mm. top of like a whole loft full of clutter, unread, obviously. Um, but at one point I couldn't even get in the loft. It was so full. The stuff had fallen on the hatch. <laughs> so then I couldn't get in the hatch. So mm. I had to get my friend to come round um, and she's ADHD as well. And we sort of, oh, I mean, I wish we'd filmed it because we sort of had to fashion ourselves into yeah. holding it open so the other one could get in and then release the clutter from on top of the hatch. And yeah, yeah. Do you think um, RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria, do you think that can play a part in the relationship between a parent and the child? Oh, interesting question. I mean, I think RSD um, infiltrates every area of your life. You know, there's not, there's not many parts of your life that RSD doesn't get to. Because I'm in a, a, a co-parenting situation with my child. And I suppose, yeah, the RSD does kick in around that. I wanted to ask you, because I had a few messages saying that they felt it, parents felt it when... In what context? If, if a child was perhaps giving one parent more attention than the other, or if the, te if the parent perceived that their child loved the other parent more than them, or if the, the child wanted to play with a friend mm. more, then I've had messages of parents sharing their experiences where they felt that intense reaction and that intense sort of feeling that you get with RSD in, in those circumstances. And I was just curious to know if you related to that at all. Yeah, I think actually, yes. And I think that is that does feel like it's a really natural response. Um, you know, when you've created this life and they're, you know, our children are or like our be all and end all. So yeah, that does definitely make sense. With the RSD as a as a as an actual like trait, that's something that I've been working really hard on for myself because that is, I, I think that's by far the most debilitating mm. trait for me to ha to handle for me because I when I feel it it's like a physical reaction and um you know I will be devastated when I feel when my RSD is triggered so what I have learned to do now because you can't stop it from happening um you can't stop the sort of uh the severity of that feeling but what you can do is remind yourself that although it feels real in the moment and it, and it is real you know it is a real feeling it's disproportionate so that's what i try to do now and then so when i'm feeling rsd so if somebody has triggered my rsd the last thing i will do now is tell them what i'm thinking or what i'm feeling I give myself a bit of distance mm. because I think that's just only going to end one way. If you're feeling really rejected and someone, but someone hasn't meant to reject you, mm. it's a, that's going to be a clash 
You know, like that conversation in the moment when you're feeling that extreme feeling, it's going to be a clash. So I always now just take myself away. But yeah, RSD, I think reminding yourself it's not, although it feels real, it's not as real as you think it is. There's something that my friend told me actually, which is a really helpful sentence around this. Um, she sees a therapist regularly and she said that her therapist told her, usually if, it's, if it makes you hysterical, it's historical. So then it goes back again to what triggered that RSD. Mm. And if you can do the work to track it back to where maybe that originated, because for a lot of us, that will be way back in childhood. And it will be linked in with those 10,000 negative mm. messages that we received before we were the age of what, 10? Yeah. You know, so mm. if we can then go back and think, ah, that's maybe that's just nothing more than a muscle memory. It's taken us back mm. to that point in time. And a therapy that I had for, because another thing I was diagnosed with before I was diagnosed with ADHD and autistic traits and dyscalculia was PTSD. So there was a therapy I had called EMDR, which is short for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And I think that that probably could be really good for RSD because it's about um, filing memories back where they should be. And um, I mean, it cured my PTSD within about six sessions. Mm. So that's something I would advise people to look that up, EMDR. It's really good advice regarding the RSD as well to recognize that it's disproportionate to the actual event and to put distance between that event, the trigger and your reaction, because nine times out of 10, you probably are being irrational. And if you say or do something in that moment, you will regret it. A hundred percent. Which will yeah. lead to further anxiety. Yeah. And this is, you know, where it goes back to pre-diagnosis. I mean, God, I must have had so many uh, explosions in my life, mm. purely down to RSD. But I didn't know it was RSD because mm. I didn't even know what RSD was. Yeah. And now you have the awareness. You can take a step back. Yes. That's what it goes back to. Again, the mm. self-awareness labeling the feeling mm. or the traits and then working out what's triggering it mm. so you know these are all none of us want to like i'm very um i want to be very clear that i don't want to like i'm not looking to cure my adhd and i'm not looking to cure my autistic traits or my dyscalculia like they're all a part of me and i think they are very often brilliant parts of me that you know I, are just funny and interesting and quirky and all of those things. I mean, they are challenging at times as well, but I wouldn't change them. Like some days I'll have a more autistic day mm. than others, you know, and I don't get to choose what day that is. If I have a really autistic day and I, I know I've offended somebody, I'll try to go back and revisit that the next day and say, this is why that happened and not apologize for it, but just explain, you know, because I think we've all spent so much time apologizing. Mm for things that we can't help actually. So it's not about an, an apology, it's about an explanation of why this this is why it happens, you know. So it's just sort of part of part of who I am. How's your mental health today? It's good. My mental health is really good at the moment. It's touch touch wood. <laughs> it's really good at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I do take ADHD meds. Mm. Um Elvance, and I also have an anti-anxiety med that I take as well, sertraline. And um, 
I mean, you know, I know people have mixed views on those and there's no right or wrong because it's a very personal choice for anybody. Um, but for me, they've been game changing. And I sort of feel like, you know, this is the person that I was always meant to be. And I've got a friend who takes the same combination of meds to me. And um, she said that if we'd had access to this information and this medication years ago, we'd all be Beyonce by now. <laughs> if you could go back in time with the knowledge that you have on neurodiversity now and put your arms around yourself, what would you, what would you whisper in young Kirsty's ear? I would have wanted to tell myself to stick up for myself a bit more. To not be scared to stick up for myself. Like I'm really good at advocating for other people and I'm really good for sticking up for other people and fighting each other's, like someone else's battles or fighting a, um, a, you know, a political cause. But I can't, I'm really not very good at sticking up for myself. And I think there has always been this underlying feeling of, well, you've done something wrong. Mm. You know you've done something wrong. You've, you deserve this. You deserve to be told off. You deserve to be um, sacked or, you know, because these, again, are messages that we've all internalized forever. So I would say, don't, free, don't be afraid to stick up for yourself more because I don't think I've stuck up for myself enough. And, you know, I, we spoke about this on the phone last night about mad things that have happened in the life of so many neurodivergent people. And we did touch upon like why the traits that could have been picked up when I was a kid. But when I was moving into adulthood and getting my first job, for instance, mm. and I worked in a photo processing shop where you used to take the films in to be processed. And I was promoted to manager of that shop when I was only about 17, I think. And but I could never remember the safe combination to the safe. And so obviously this was back in the days before phones. And I knew that if I tried to write the safe combination down on a notepad, I'd lose the notepad. So I just thought it was perfectly reasonable, like brilliant even. I thought I'd found a brilliant solution. And I wrote the combination of the safe on the wall above the safe. And then the shop got broken into. And I may as well have wrapped the safe with a big bow <laughs> on it saying steal me <laughs> obviously the police had to be involved because mm. it, was, it was a it was a proper burglary and um i the police definitely made me feel like i think they think i was they thought i was in on it you know like little 17 year old innocent gullible daft girl that had like written a safe combination they couldn't believe that that would be a thing <laughs> like code out on a plate for them. nobody <laughs> would do that you know in their right mind and i feel like that's the girl i would want to go back to mm. and say you can stick up for yourself here you don't have to be like you don't have to fall into this narrative of what people think is normal and what they think is i don't know like I was made to feel like I was a criminal actually mm. in that in that situation. And I couldn't have been more innocent. Like it's pure innocence, isn't it? It's like a thing a child would do. You know, and I couldn't understand why they did they were being, you know, why I was being suspected. But yeah, just mad. Mm. I, I yeah, mad. 
there's been so many instances <clears throat> like that in like my career of odd things like I've been sacked so many times I've done every job under the sun you know like from cleaning to consulting for brands and speaking on the news like every every sort of and everything in between and once I even did a stint as a legal secretary for my friend that was a music lawyer and um he so he was his office was up on a mezzanine and halfway through the day he would open the little window and he'd say cup of tea and I'd go yes please <laughs> and he would he would come downstairs and he would make the cups of teas and I was the secretary and he was the lawyer <laughs> and he didn't tell me until I left and when I handed when I handed my notice in he went oh thank god for that I've never made so many cups of teas in my life but again it comes back to the literal thinking mm. doesn't it like I was the secretary. I sh how did I think that the lawyer was asking me if I wanted a cup of tea? He was obviously saying, can you make a cup of tea? You know, all of this sort of stuff. When you look back on mm. it, it, it becomes significant. I think your story, Kirsty, is so relatable to so many, so many women and parents are going to find listening to your story and, and the advice that you've shared today is super, super useful. And you've recently written a book just quickly with, with to the end, the journey into SEND, S-E-N-D, yeah. motherhood. Very briefly explain what, what happened to the, in the lead up to writing the book. So um, the book is a collection of stories. I think there are 17 stories in there. Mm. So there's 17, 17 mums, all of us um, on our own individual journeys with mm. children that have special educational needs or, and or dis disabilities. Um, and as anybody, any parent or even family member knows, when you are on this different parenting path, there is no help. There's no guidance. You know, we're all teaching ourselves as we're going along. And often we are completely lost on that journey, isolated, feeling like we're the only ones that understand what's happening. So the, t the 17 of us, came together to write this book, to share our own stories, to shine a light on, you know, the challenges, but also the brilliance of being on the journey that we're on. Because it is hilarious, you know, it can be, I mean, you've got to have a good sense of humour when you're yeah. when you're a neurodivergent brain owner, you know, and certainly when you're the parent of a neurodivergent child as well. Um, but the book came, the book came about in the very first place because this summer, 12 of us that were all just like people that knew each other on Instagram, I guess, that were all going through this journey of special educational needs in the education system, all being failed by the education system, like on a huge scale um, to the point where a lot of our children just aren't even in school anymore. You know, my child hasn't been in school full time for a, a whole year. And that's in addition to COVID um, we, on a good week. Sonny might make it in one or two days a week. And so all of us, these 12 parents came together. We were super angry, super frustrated, super just like, you know, at the ends of our tethers, I think, but also very passionate that we need to create some sort of real change. And so we formed a campaigning group called Send Reform England. So if any parents out there are struggling with the education system, get, you know, message us, follow us on Instagram, get involved. Mm. Like it's a really lovely, supportive network of parents that are all sharing information and strategies. But we we organized a series of protests across the country. 
very nearly killed us. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to sit here and say, oh, yeah, we've organised a series of protests. My God, I mean, we all had meltdowns, all of us <laughs> at points, you know. But what was lovely about that is that that's okay. You know, we like, we all get it. Mm. We're all neurodivergent. We're all in neurodivergent families and we're trying to change things. So we have to embrace doing things a different way. Um, so yeah, we did it. It nearly killed us, but it was successful. Uh, and now we've got our first event in the Houses of Parliament on the 16th of January, where we're going to be speaking to MPs about real world changes within the education system, um, you know, at proper government policy level, which is really exciting. Um, and I think the book came about from one of the mums, I'm not even sure, where somebody approached us, said, let's do a book. It, it's, there's no publisher involved. It's self-published. Mm. Um, you know, it was all done on a shoestring budget. And it's just 12 mums, 17 mums, in fact, in the book, but 12 in the campaigning group, all just saying, you know what, we've, we've survived this journey, not because of the people that are supposed to help us, but in spite of them. And we need support for our kids. Our, our kids deserve an education. And, you know, like there is a different way of doing things. And I think that one of the most common bits of feedback we've had from people that have read the book is them saying we're not alone. Oh my God, it's not just us which is just so lovely, mm. you know, because we've all been in that situation where we felt it's just us. So yeah, it's really, we're very, 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 very proud of it. Very proud of it. It's amazing. I will put the link to it in the description, Kirsty. Thank you. And thank you so much for today. And thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Uh, it's, it's inspiring. So thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.